Anyone into anyone in here into superhero movies at all? Seeing how well this illustration is going to go. All right, perfect. Three people. I'm committed to it though, so we're going with it. I I kind of like them. I'm not like a, a Giga fan or anything like that, but I, I enjoy the odd superhero movie. A couple of them that I've seen recently are. Spider-Man, because everyone loves Spider-Man, Superman, and Iron Man, all right? And one thing that I think Hollywood really likes about a superhero movie is their origin story. It's how did they become this person? And so we see that in Iron Man. He becomes Tony Stark, who's very, very, very smart, becomes Iron Man, and when he puts on the suit, he then is Iron Man. On the complete other side of this, we see Superman. Now, Superman is actually Kal-El, I think, from a different planet. That's, that's who he really is. He puts on a costume as well. But the costume that he puts on is Clark Kent, which is totally and completely different, isn't it? So on one hand, you have Iron Man, who, uh, Tony Stark, who becomes Iron Man. But then you have Superman, who becomes Clark Kent. That's not... Superman is his true self. He puts on a disguise. And the disguise that he puts on lessens him. Lessens him. Now, this causes some thoughts within me. And it's, what are we putting on, figuratively, that inhibits us, that prohibits us, that lessens us, that doesn't allow us to express our true selves? What are we putting on to disguise ourselves, to attempt to fit in and not allowing for our individuality and our uniqueness? What are we doing that is preventing that? Remember, when he, when he takes off that costume, when Superman takes off that costume, he becomes his true self. What is it in our lives that we need to take off to become who we really are? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. God, I thank you for your love. As I was going over my sermon this morning, I was just struck again and again by the common thread that pulls all of this together, and it is your love. God, your love for each and every one of us goes so far beyond our comprehension for it. God, would you awaken us to this incredible love that you have for us? Would you allow us to see ourselves how you see us? We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Al Westerman, and I'm the pastor here. And I love being the pastor here. And I'm so grateful that you are here with us today as we're going through this series on misfits. 
Now, I'm really surprised this article hasn't been referenced yet, but every time we talk about misfits, I think about this article. I don't even know who wrote it, but before you say that you're not qualified, I recently came across this and want to share it with you. Noah got drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer, Jacob lied, Leah was ugly, Joseph was abused, Moses was a murderer and couldn't talk proper, Gideon was afraid, Samson had long hair and was afraid, Rahab was a prostitute, Jeremiah and Timothy were too young, David was a murderer and adulterer, Elijah was suicidal, Isaiah preached naked, Jonah ran from God, Naomi was a widow, Job went bankrupt, John the Baptist ate bugs, Peter denied Christ, the disciples fell asleep while praying, Martha worried about everything, Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed, Samaritan woman was divorced more than once, Zacchaeus was too small, Paul was a murderer, Timothy had an ulcer, and Lazarus was dead. That's a big list of misfits. And if... And that last one just really, it always sticks with me. And I love the story of Lazarus. So would you turn to John 11, verse 1, was where we're going to be starting. But Lazarus, we're going to look at the story of Lazarus, but Lazarus isn't even the misfit in this story. It's on page 871 if you're using a pew Bible. Lazarus isn't even the misfit in this story. The clothing is, believe it or not. And so we're going to be on a journey and see how we get there. But the clothing is misfitting. And it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't fit in the natural. It's that it doesn't fit the person. It's sending a message different than that. Guys, i got to tell you, I'm really excited about this sermon I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. This is one of my very favorite stories, and I say this all the time, I know this, but this is one of my very favorite stories in the entire Bible. This is significant. In Jesus' life, this is significant because this, is, this happens right near the end of his life, and so we know that it's important that way. We save the best for last. This is also significant because what Jesus did in this story was so tremendous and incredible that the religious leaders decided after he did this, we cannot allow this man to go on. And that that's from their perspective what they were thinking. And after this, they decided they were going to have Jesus murdered. That's how significant and powerful this event is. Verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Something I find interesting about that, that hasn't even happened yet. That's actually in the next chapter, that story. I want to look at that in two weeks. But John, the author here, thinks that that instant is so significant and that the impact of it is so widespread that people will have heard of it. 
It's like, this Mary, this hasn't even happened yet, but this Mary, you know, you've heard of her. I haven't even shared this story yet, but you've heard of her because you've heard of what she did. That Mary. So, the sisters sent word to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. Let's camp here for a minute. Imagine with me that someone very, very close to you is, is deathly ill, and Jesus happens to be two towns over. What do you do? Well, they decide to write a letter. Okay, fair enough. That's a good idea. What are you going to write in the letter? Do you, you ever think about things like that? What are you going to write in a letter to Jesus trying to convince him to come and heal the one that you love. Did you? Oh, that's so cool. She had to do that in school. I would probably be writing things like, they pray every day, they, they give to the poor, they love you, they love people. Just merit-based things, right? This person deserves to be healed, essentially. Jesus, come and do it. It it would be good. It would be for your glory, you know, whether that's what you feel or not. How are trying to convince him? Now, by the power and guidance of Holy Spirit, that's not the tack that they take. That's not the way that they go about it. They go about it in such an incredible and inspired way. The letter is short. I would say almost insultingly short. In the Greek, it's five words. Lord, the one you love is sick. <sighs> I think they, they didn't even mention the love that Lazarus has for Jesus. That's interesting. The reason for this has to be because as much as Lazarus may love Jesus, they recognize that the love that Jesus has for Lazarus is, it so dwarfs the love that he has, that Lazarus has for Jesus. The love that Jesus has is so much greater and so much, so much stronger. We read John 3 earlier. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now this is an idea that may be surprising to you, but I think we really get it. God is, God is sometimes moved. God is moved by our love for him, by our affection for him. He, that, does, that does move God, and we see that later on in the story. But what really moves God is his love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave. It's not even that just God loved the world. God so loved the world that he was compelled toward motion. I think they recognized this love that God has for them and how powerful of a force that love is. 
And they didn't even, if, if you read this, the five words, Lord, the one you love is sick. It didn't say, come instantly. It didn't even say, come. They just understood that this love that Jesus has was going to compel him to go. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. This was, this was the moment. In, this was Jesus' turning point in the, in the story. People have it later on, but this was Jesus's. Jesus knew the outcome from this point on. He became convinced of what God was going to do at, in this moment. And verse 5 seems redundant, doesn't it? Verse 3, we mentioned that Jesus loves Lazarus. Verse 5, it almost doesn't need to be there. If, if verse 5 wasn't there, it seems like we wouldn't be missing anything, doesn't it? Verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha, uh, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's kind of implied. So why, why is it in there? The beauty here is in the translation. Our English is kind of limited. The word they used... Now, they recognize the love that Jesus had for them, but they use the word phileo, brotherly love, affection for. Lord, the one that you have affection for is sick. They, they recognize this love, which is, which is so amazing, isn't it? But what Jesus says, what, what, the love that Jesus has for them, that is shown in verse 5, is agape love. It is unconditional love. It is sacrificial love. On a scale that humans can't truly or properly understand, that's the love. That's the love that Jesus has for them. To say this a different way, yeah, you understand that Jesus loves you, this, this is what John is saying about to, uh, Mary and Martha, but this is, I believe, what God is saying to you as well. Yes, you understand that God loves you, but you understand it like this human version of love that you've been acquainted with. And what God is saying to you today is it's so much more than that. It is so much greater than that. It is so much more far-reaching than that. That's the love that God has for you. And it is because of this love that Jesus does what he does next. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. The rabbi they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back? And that actually happened in the verses just before John 11. So it literally, like, just happened. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, 
but I'm going to wake him up. Jesus is so convinced of what is going to happen that to him, it's as simple as waking someone up from sleep. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking about his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, known as Didymus, both of which mean twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. To me, this is a confusing verse. What, what does he mean? Why does he want to go die with Lazarus? Is it a spiritual death? I, I, I just didn't understand. So I looked it up. Wrong him. He's talking about Jesus. Let us go die with Jesus. If you remember, they're afraid to go back there because the Jews are trying to stone them. So the disciples literally believe in going with Jesus here, there's a very good chance that we're all going to die. And they decide to go anyway. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Okay, so here we have uh, a map. In chapter 10, it says that Jesus went back to the place where John the baptizer was baptizing in the early days. And that would be right about where it says Jordan there. See where the J of Jordan is? It would be pretty close to that. That's roughly where he would have been. So he had to go to pretty much where the J of Jerusalem is. That's, that's roughly where Bethany would have been. And if you map it out, depending on where bridges and roads and all those things would have been in those days, maybe 50 to 60 kilometers. So that's the kind of distance that it wouldn't be fun, but hypothetically, you could walk that in a day. That wouldn't be a great day, but I don't think that's what Jesus did. I think Jesus took two or maybe even three days or more to walk the distance. Why? It's a very good question, but that's what he did. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Beautiful statement, beautiful way of addressing the Lord. Here, she exposes everything about herself. She exposes her vulnerability. She exposes her sorrow, her fear. She, she lays it all out, but she doesn't leave it there. She continues to hope. She moves on to hope, expressing the bleakness and despair of the situation, yet the hope that she has and who she has that hope in. Jesus' response to her is, your brother will rise again. 
Mary had gone to synagogue, and so she had heard lots of teaching, lots of, lots of good teaching. And the prominent teaching of the day back then was that the righteous, there would be a resurrection of the righteous on the last day. So, so that's what she says. See, Jesus is talking here about an immediate reality. He's talking about what he's going to do in her situation, but she takes it as words of comfort. She takes it as theology. He's giving her theology. And so she responds with theology, with words. And words are good. I love words, but they're incomplete. And Jesus recognizes this. And his response is, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're you're in the scripture. You're in in these books. You've learned the things, but they point to someone. And they point to me. I am the resurrection. Don't, Don't miss me in this book. This is what Jesus is saying to her, essentially. It's having faith in a person. It's, it's one thing if they're just ideas and thoughts and little believies that are nice. Jesus is saying it's so much more than that. This is, this is real. I am truth incarnate. I am this in flesh. Where Martha responds with the written word, Jesus says, I am the living word. I am the resurrection. And the life. No one, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then this last question that just gets me. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's why we're here, isn't it? One time at youth group, I was asking some questions. And one of my students gave me the right answer. And it was. It was the right answer. But I asked her. I said, do you believe that? Take him back. Oh, I, um, um, I mean, maybe. See, I, I, I did. I did believe it. But we, we can get caught up with having the right answers. This, this, isn't, this isn't about having the right answers. The right, the right answers are fine, but do you actually believe it? Do you actually believe that when Jesus says something, he means it? Do you actually believe that Jesus is who he said he was? Do you believe that you are who he says that you are? That what the Bible says about Jesus is true? Do you actually believe it? Do you actually actually believe when the Bible says anyone who is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. Everyone is a new creation. Do you believe that you are a new creation? Not just on paper, Practically, actually, do you believe this? 
I am constantly challenged by that question, and I hope you are as well. Yes, Lord, she replies. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Almost a word-for-word replica of what Martha said. What's interesting is how the two sisters react and how Jesus interacts with them. I used to think Martha, because we have another interaction with Mary and Martha. There's this story where he visits them and Martha is busy with all these things and Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says to Mary, So he says to Martha that Mary has chosen the better part, just to be with him. And so we kind of view Martha as this hard-nosed, get-it-done kind of person. And I used to, I even taught it where it's like Martha marches up to Jesus, hand on hip, finger waving, and scolds the Lord. That's kind of how I used to picture it. I don't picture it like that anymore. I don't think that's how she would have been. I think Martha came out with full sincerity and vulnerability. I think, I think she had an interaction with Jesus. And I don't think that you can have an interaction with Jesus without being changed. And I think she was changed. Now, what's amazing to me and what's just so incredible about our Jesus is how he interacts with the two. I think Martha was more of an intellectual. And so he meets her intellectually. And she needs to process this. And so he processes this with her. Allowing her to express her faith and her hope and her disbelief and her fears. And he he processes it with her. And Mary just falls at his feet and weeps. And what does Jesus do? One of the shortest verses of the Bible coming up. Jesus wept. Jesus meets us where we have need, specific to who we are. He knows how you function. He knows how you think. And he meets you in that way. That's how good our Jesus is. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how much he loved him. But some of them said, could 
not he who opened the eyes of a man born blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. Why did Jesus take his time getting there? Why did Jesus take his time leaving? When Jesus first met Martha, she essentially said to him, Lord, if you really wanted to, if you really wanted to, you could have made it here before he died. And that's possible. If, as soon as he got the message, he would have left and he would have went all day. He, he probably may have been able to make it there before he died. But Jesus was willing to trade something that was good for something that was so much better. Jesus could have even gotten there after he had died and allowed his spirit to go back in because the Jewish way of thinking back then was that after someone died, their spirit would hover around them for three days. And during that time, there was still some hope of resurrection. But with Jesus, there's still, there's definitely hope for resurrection. But after four days, after four days, all hope is gone because the spirit's no longer there. It's too late. They don't know my Jesus. You see, he has exclusive rights to the impossible. Jesus can do it. Jesus has exclusive rights to the impossible. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He called his name. He calls his name, and Lazarus comes alive inside. Literally. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So these grave clothes fit him in the natural in terms of like the, they were wrapped around him. If you picture something like a mummy, right? He was wrapped in all these cloths. They fit him, but they were misfitting for him, for who he actually was. Grave clothes is something I'm using as a metaphor to illustrate things that can represent who we were, or who we thought we were, or who we're pretending to be, maybe as a disguise, maybe as a barrier, maybe, maybe it's a hurt that we've bandaged or 
never really allowed Jesus into. And what Jesus is saying to Lazarus here is to take those off, to get rid of them because they're no longer you. These represent death. I've called your name. I've called you back into life. We see this, we see this with Martha. If we think Martha was hard-nosed and stubborn and, and, and cross and all that, I think we see a much softer, more vulnerable Martha in this situation. Jesus saw this, and Jesus helped her to become who he made her to be. We see this with Mary. I think Mary had a lot of timidity. She, was, she might have been scared. And so Jesus calls her forth. He calls her name. And I think some boldness awakens inside of her. This is the same Mary who poured perfume over the Lord's feet. This is a boldness. Jesus is able to separate. He's able to show them a better version, a better way forward, who they truly are. And when people recognize that, they're able to let go of who they're not and what they're not. They're able to get rid of those grave clothes, so to speak. I challenge you, as you read through the Bible, you will see Jesus interacting with people constantly. And what you will see again and again and again is that Jesus does something a little bit extra. And whenever Jesus does something a little bit extra, you could think that he's addressing the grave clothes. He's trying to get rid of the grave clothes, whether that's shame, whether that's addiction, whether that's an incorrect way of thinking, an incorrect way of living. Anytime Jesus does something extra, that's what he's doing, is he's loving the person. Remember, all of this is rooted in his love. He cares about people's salvation, but he doesn't just care about people's salvation. He cares about their hearts. He cares about your hearts. He cares about how you're feeling and how you're processing. And that's why he doesn't leave us how we are. He comes to us. He convicts us of our value. So, he does this with us too, right? And I challenge you to think, what are your grave clothes? What are the things that maybe we're holding on to? Something that doesn't bring us life from our past. What are we holding on to? Maybe, maybe it's a disguise that we've put on to try to fit in. God made you uniquely you. And the beautiful thing is when we become more like Christ, we become more like who we were meant to be. <sighs> My friends, it comes down to this. Do you believe it? Do you believe what he says? Do you believe what he says about you? Do you believe that you can have freedom from your past hurts? Do you believe you can have freedom from addiction? Do you believe you can have freedom from sinful ways of thinking? That you can have freedom from sadness? 
Do you believe you can have connection with God most high, that he actually wants to meet with you? Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this incredible, incredible love that you have for us. We thank you that you loved us first, that you were moved by the love that you have for us. Thank you that I am the one that you love, that everyone in here is the one that you love. Jesus, I pray that you speak to our hearts right now. Illuminate within us. Where are we wearing grave clothes? What kind of grave clothes are we wearing? What are we holding on to? that was never meant to be a part of us, that was never meant to be connected to us. Thank you, Jesus.